This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Technology gets a big boost in President Biden's new discretionary spending outline. The outline includes $5 billion for IT at the Department of Veterans Affairs and another $500 million for the Technology Modernization Fund. FedScoop reports the outline also includes a $750 million reserve for IT upgrades. A new survey of federal employees is coming from the Office of Personnel Management. The Federal Workforce Competency Initiative will collect data OPM will use for job design, recruitment, performance management, and training. FCW reports the new surveys and evolution of surveys OPM already uses. The Office of the Director of National Intelligence will launch an ad campaign to attract new talent. Lori Welch, the Chief of Emerging Talent at ODNI, says the campaign will target STEM talent as young as K-12. through FCW reports ODNI will call the campaign what it takes. It will roll out later this summer. The Office of Personnel Management has a new list of recommendations from the National Academy of Public Administration. Some former officials say there's a risk those recommendations could get lost in the shuffle. Janice Lachance is executive vice president at the American Geophysical Union, former director of OPM. Janice, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You told the terrific reporter at Federal News Network, Nicola Grisco, OPM is going to need partners to move forward. Who are those partners that OPM will need and what will they need to do for OPM to realize the vision that Napa laid out or that the Biden administration determines with Congress or whatever? Interestingly, I think all of these potential partners and in my view required partners are of similar importance, right? They need all of these people to move forward. So first of all, this complicated relationship that OPM has with the Office of Management and Budget has to be clarified. Uh, Personnel in the federal government is a complex topic and there's room enough for everybody. And there's so much talent in both agencies, but they just have to figure out how to work together moving forward and who gets the last word on policy, who gets the last word on budget, who gets the last word on how we measure success. Those sorts of collaborations with OMB, I think, are critical. I think the White House, per se, the office of the president, the president himself is committed to the federal workforce. So I think the new OPM director is going to start with a tremendous advantage there. We saw evidence of this even before the inauguration when the president stepped out and talked directly to federal employees about how important they were. But the other key partner here is Congress. Congress is really going to have to think about how to resource OPM to make it successful, how they're going to help get it to its desired state. And that's going to be a combination of appropriations, oversight, authorizing bills that really will send a signal to the entire federal government that OPM should have 
the expertise and should have the resources to do a good job for the entire federal government. And that last point is also key here. OPM definitely should have authority over all personnel systems across government. That's the only way we're going to be able to deal and come up with a strategic approach to what is uh, the country's key asset, which are federal employees. The most important, I think, of those three uh, in the congressional triumvirate that you laid out there, appropriations, authorization, oversight, strikes me as appropriations. I was really struck by the fact that the recommendation that Napa made to transition OPM from a fee-for-service organization to an appropriated organization didn't get much more attention than it got. A lot of the other things, you know, the, the GSA stuff and all of that got a lot of attention. Understand that. But, I mean, that's revolutionary, as you well know, having led that organization, yeah. what, what potentially an appropriations infusion could do for it, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think the message that it sends, beyond just OPM's going to need the money to fund this, the message it sends is that the entire federal government, every personnel office in every agency needs the support and the expertise of an agency like OPM, whose sole job is to make sure we have the right people in the right jobs for the American people. And having to pay for that sort of, you know, giving money to one agency only to have them give it to OPM for advice that really should be fundamental and should be available across the government equally to all agencies. You know, I, I think we're just moving the dollar bills around the game board here. It's not as though it's more money. It's just saying to the entire federal government, you're going to have this help. You're going to have access to it. And we're not gonna worry about moving money around the government uh, and thinking about who pays who. It's going to be available. It's important. We're sending that signal. We want you to take advantage of this expertise. Janice, Janice this piece is uh, that uh, Nicole wrote that you're quoted in is titled, Advocates Worry Napa Report Will Be Easily Forgotten. What is that congressional triumvirate that you laid out enough to make sure that it's not forgotten, that things actually happen? The ideas are great. People like the ideas. But if the ideas stay on that report and don't ever manifest themselves in real life, it's completely useless. Mm -hmm. Well, what I'm hoping is that the Biden administration and the new director at OPM is really going to embrace the report and make it a part of their strategy and their plans going forward. And I, people have often said that there aren't a lot of champions for the civil service in the Congress. And that's true in a way. It's not the issue that's going to get you the headline back home. But every member of Congress, every senator has federal employees in their state, in their districts. And there are enough of them to form a core and to really work toward getting some of these things done and getting them enacted, getting them funded. So I hope that they stay focused on this. There are people like Chairman Jerry Conley 
of the Government Operations Subcommittee, who has already done an extensive amount of work to ensure OPM's success going forward. And I hope he and his colleagues really focus on this, find champions in the Senate, and make this happen. Janice, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you. It's great to be here, Francis. Up next, 30 years of government reform straight ahead on Government Matters. What works and what doesn't to change the status quo. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The changing of the guard at the White House doesn't necessarily mean government reform efforts have to go back to square one. The IBM Center for the Business of Government has a look at 30 years of government reform efforts. Dan Chenix, executive director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government. He's former chief of the Information Policy and Technology Branch at OMB. And Dan, before we talk about the work uh, that is at hand, we have to congratulate your colleague in putting this together. John Kamensky's retiring from the IBM Center after a long and distinguished career of working on these kinds of issues. Congratulations to him. What did you and John find as you look over the past 30 years of government reform efforts? Well, thanks so much, Fran, for having me on and, and for celebrating John's uh, significant career over multiple decades, which will continue. He, he will continue to work with us in an emeritus status, and he'll continue his terrific work with partner organizations like the National Academy of public administration where he remains a fellow. So we've all learned a lot from John about government reform. And that was part of the, the uh, input to this report was really thinking about as a new administration comes in, there have been many reforms that have been tried over many decades from administrations of both parties. And oftentimes when new political leaders come in, they, they wanna start from scratch. Um, but the, the reforms have often uh, roots in uh, prior administrations in terms of, of things that have been done that continue and also things that were done that didn't really work so well. And so the report was trying to sort of capture both types of lessons as we go forward. All right. Step one is developing the reform initiative. And you break, break this one down to making a compelling case for change, engaging top leaders as champions and prioritizing among competing opportunities. Which of those are the most important, if any, in making sure that, it, that you lay the right groundwork for a reform initiative? Yeah, it's really important to do all three. Um, uh, in other words, you want to have a, a vision that people can rally behind, that they are uh, essentially part of, and that vision should be uh, led by um, uh, groups like the President's Management Council or, or the Chief Information Officers Council or the CFO Council, sort of a, a recognized cross-agency group that can help not only to develop but also to later implement and institutionalize. Uh, and then there are often many, many good ideas. The National Performance Review brought in literally thousands of ideas. The um, president's management agenda in the, in the second Bush administration uh, on the e-government side brought in hundreds. And there was a specific process about prioritizing that the people involved, the champions, were, were a part of in terms of selection. The second step is implementing the reform initiative. And you break that one down, creating a governance structure, engaging staff at different levels and creating a community. That community seems to be the critical element there, in my view. Am I reading it right? That's uh, uh, correct. The governance structure is sort of the foundational element, but unless you have 
staff, career leaders, political leaders, outside interest groups like the nonprofit sector, the good government community, and also Congress. That's a critical element that has been uh, found in terms of government reforms that are often in the executive branch um, come up and then uh, sometimes they go away. If there are champions in Congress who can help to uh, continue focus in terms of oversight or even in terms of codification of the statute, that's a way to significantly uh, sustain and uh, make more likelihood of the success of implementation. Four pieces of the third and final step, which is sustaining the initiative, creating ongoing institutional structures, new routines, a dual track approach, embedding new requirements and ensuring ongoing collaboration with Congress, as you just referenced. Um, the sustaining piece is the piece, though, that I think over the initiatives I've tracked over the years where things have the tendency to the greatest tendency to go afoul. Um, it's really hard, especially when leaders change within an administration and, of course, when administrations change, to sustain the momentum of, of initiatives. But if you look at in the technology space, a lot of the initiatives that were started really at the end of the Clinton administration in terms of putting things online, like creating the first uh, federal government portal, which is now USA.gov, which led to a lot of the good ideas that were brought into place by the Bush administration uh, in the president's management agenda around the e-government e Quicksilver initiative, which then led to a number of the open government initiatives in the Obama administration that spawned a number of the cross-agency goals related to technology that are continuing even today through the last several administrations. So there, there are ways to create a through line, and they rely on this community and career leaders um, and the willingness of, of new political officers to come in and understand what's happened before and how to improve them. One of the things that I imagine you take a lot of heart from is we talked in the beginning of this program in the headlines about what the Biden administration at least wants technology-wise. Remains to be seen what Congress will appropriate and, and authorize. But the, the track that it seems uh, that we're on is that this administration understands that continuity is important and wants to continue it. Is that a fair read, do you think? Absolutely. We're seeing a lot of signals from the Biden administration, especially in terms of the Technology Modernization Fund, first proposed in the Obama administration, enacted uh, in the previous administration, and now uh, continuing forward as part of the uh, American Rescue Plan Act at, at a significantly expanded level of a billion dollars. And um, a lot of those initiatives and those projects will be coming forward as improvements, um, but also new initiatives that help the Biden administration address its key priorities around COVID response and recovery, economic revitalization, racial justice, and climate change. So there's ways to continue and there's ways to introduce new. Dan Chenick, thanks very much as always, and thanks for the chance to honor your friend, John Kamensky. Absolutely, thank you, Francis. Up next, killing compliance in technology management. Straight ahead on Government Matters, driving down risk to push up success. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Solar winds and exchange breaches remind leaders at agencies the policies that govern cybersecurity across government aren't stopping damaging breaches. Remaking the Federal Information Security Management Act could involve as many as six steps. Richard Spires is principal at Richard A. Spires Consulting. He's former chief information officer at the Department of Homeland Security and the Internal Revenue Service. Richard, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on. 
I want to start with something that you're suggesting in some notes that you sent over. What do we really know and what do we not know about the current state of security across government as an enterprise and across individual agencies? Forget about the policy and forget about compliance. What do we know about how safe things really are? I, well, I, I hate to say it in a negative view. I don't think we know nearly as much as we should, Francis. And, you know, that gets to the whole part of, of why we need to revamp FISMA. That we really need to take a, uh, an enterprise approach to cybersecurity, starting with risk management. And where do you start with risk management? You got to know what you've got. Even basic things like inventory and what controls you have in place today on an enterprise basis. And the, the word enterprise is really important there because so many CISOs or CIOs don't have a full understanding or, or, or really can't see across their whole enterprise. They don't have the authority sometimes to be able to do that. We've got to change that with a new FISMA law. You may remember, I believe it was 2014 or 2015, Richard McKinney was the chief information officer at the transportation mm -hmm. department at the time. And Richard completed an inventory of the entire network, mapped the entire network at the transportation department and knew what devices were on that network. What's happened or what hasn't happened that in 2021, six years later, longer, we're having the same conversation, Richard. Yeah, we are, uh, Francis. Uh, you know, it, it goes to a lot of its culture, right? I mean, even with the Fatara law, which has certainly helped, um, we've got to just move beyond where we're at right now and, and recognize that if you're going to do enterprise security well, you've got to have that full view of what's going on. But it goes beyond that too. We now need to move beyond th that into a model where we're really moving towards a zero trust architecture. I think the SolarWinds attack is just a great example of that. You, you, you can't, not only can you not trust the users on your systems, and you've always got to be monitoring that and having a high degree of confidence that they are who they say they are, but now we can't even necessarily trust the suppliers of equipment or software for our systems either. So we've got to go to a zero trust model where you're really looking for anomalous behavior on a continuous basis, on an enterprise basis. And I keep coming back to that theme of enterprise and being able to look across your whole, uh, whole uh, network infrastructure. Well, and it strikes me too that given what we've learned about SolarWinds and, and Exchange, and the, the government as an enterprise, not just, for example, in your case, the Department of Homeland Security, mm -hmm. you should have visibility as the CIO at DHS of what security looks like across the agencies with which you interact, which in the case of DHS is every agency, shouldn't you? Sure, yeah. Yeah, and I, th I think, you know, I believe that there's some positive steps there. I think DHS has been given a, a bigger and bigger role um, through the CISO organization to be able to monitor and work with the agencies, that's all positive. But, you know, Francis, when I, when I talk to individuals uh, working in agencies that are in IT or in uh, security organizations, you know, we're far from where we need to be in, in just these basic concepts that we're talking about here and implementing them on an agency-wide basis and almost all the agencies. Um, you had, as I mentioned, there are six elements of this uh, that you're suggesting risk analysis and prioritization, good cyber hygiene, zero trust, IT monetization plans, addressing cybersecurity skills challenges, reducing reporting burdens. And you make two recommendations for legislation to reform FISMA to improve it. 
Two is great because inevitably these recommendations are always long lists. How did you yes. arrive at these two recommendations well, and what are they, Richard? I mean, the first the first recommendation really captures that six step, you know, those six you know, steps of, of the things that should be in there. And the, and my my recommendation to those that are working the, the FISMA legislation rewrite is, you know, be careful, right? You don't want to be so specific. I mean, I think it's good to bring in the concepts of enterprise risk management, the use of the of the cybersecurity framework from NIST to be able to do that. Um, and because that will evolve. I mean, what you want to do is you want to have legislation that will cite other things that will continue to evolve. Zero trust, I think, is a concept we can get into legislation now and should, as an example. Um, so that that was my first real recommendation is, you know, don't get hung up so much on the specificity of things that are going to outdate the law very quickly, which is we've had in the pro uh, pro problems in the past. The second really is the reporting. I can't tell you, I mean, we've got too many people in government worried about compliance reporting. I, I, I'm going to state this very explicitly. It would be much better for every agency to work on their five top security risks and really, really nail those because that will reduce what could happen on a really bad day on a really uh, with a really bad breach than to do this whole ATO process across all the systems, the ATO, the authority to operate process that we have in place now across these thousands of systems we have in government. That is not improving our overall cybersecurity posture. Richard, there are always more ideas than there is time to talk about them. Thanks very much for coming on. Happy to do so. I'm Sharice Hanner. Government Matters is always one click away whenever you want to get the latest in the business of government. Like us on Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, follow us on Twitter, and connect with us on LinkedIn. While you're on the go, tune into the Government Matters podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and TuneIn. In tonight's event spotlight, ACT IAX Acquisition Innovation 2021 is coming. Virtual attendees will find out firsthand how government and industry are working together to build adaptability, resilience, speed, and repeatability into the acquisition process. It's happening April 20th, next Tuesday, virtually from 8 in the morning to 4 in the afternoon. You can learn more and sign up at govmatters.tv slash events. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes about how government can use software to find wide area networks to deliver the best digital experience for constituents and staff. Government agencies are continuing the transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions Vehicle, EIS, 
for telecom-related services. Industry experts are calling on agencies to use it for citizen-facing government. Tony Bardo is here. He's Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes Network Solutions. Tony, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. What does the EIS vehicle provide for agencies to make these kinds of transitions, to do the network modernization that they need to do? It's a great question, uh, as you always do lead off with, uh, Francis, and it's good to see you, again, talk to you again. But uh, here's, it, it's more interesting really to talk about what it hasn't uh, delivered yet. And uh, GSA fa faced an interesting conundrum when they were uh, putting EIS together and it was necessary to do so and they had the right vision for it and the right ideas to bring in some new blood and new new vendors and new kinds of companies. But the the services available to to the government at the time were still the same services that have been around for 20 years. Um, and that is the the MPLS network um, services that worked during the end of FTS 2001 and throughout the networks contract. So um, the, the the new services, the new modern services were just emerging. These are the new SD-WAN, the managed broadband services, and these are the kinds of services that are better equipped for handling the large surge and surges of bandwidth demand for the agencies, particularly at the edge. So what was what the agencies were sort of presented with was here's a new contract and it's got a new timetable and it's got a new scope of work and a new span of work and a new body of, 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 uh, of a performance period, but it didn't really have the new services that met the goal or the, the mantra of transforming. So what we saw in some of the early um, fair opportunities that uh, that the agencies were issuing, and it really took them a long time to start issuing them, um, but they 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 were basically asking for like for like services, and that wasn't really a uh, a plan for transforming, and it didn't. The, many of the fair opportunities, unfortunately, did not show the the vision for transforming. SD-WAN was emerging, so it was a tough call. It was a, you know, we've got to get this contract, new contract out, because the old contract is aging, it's expiring, it's got its uh, limited time frame. So it was an interesting, um, you ask an interesting question. It, it, the platform really wasn't ready there to, to, uh, to transform and leap into transformation and modernization. It's starting to happen, though. You uh, gave me a term before we started recording, and I want to tell, want you to tell me what it means and why it's important. Managed service provider, why does that matter to agencies and, and why is that concept helpful to them in these transitions, Tony? The concept, concept is really helpful because the, the, pro, the providers and the services and managing them um, makes it easier for the agencies. These, these agency telecom managers have really got it tough. They 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 have this they have this contract that they were uh, compelled to use and and encouraged to use, and they wanted to modernize. Uh, they're running their own networks today every day. They have to issue these fair opportunities to compete the business among the 
uh, providers, the, the prime uh, contractors on EIS. And they've got to do it all at the same time and all with the same workload and workforce that they that they have. So these are really, really tough. Getting Obtaining managed services takes the burden off of the limited staffs of the agencies and lets the lets the um, service providers do the work. So managed service providers can then um, offer these services, manage the networks, manage the uh, security aspects of the networks, manage the routing of the traffic on the networks through the modern architectures of broadband, managed broadband, and managed SD-WAN. Tony, there's always more great ideas to talk about than there is time to talk about them. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks very much. Thank you, Francis. Take care.